to your Bible, custom designed to your Bible reading plan and weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resonate Church, and I'm here with Sarah Pasquale, our executive director. Hey there. And so, uh, yes, we're in Jeremiah, as you will be for a few more weeks, but um, kind of still towards the beginning, and we're watching uh, as Jeremiah speaks to Israel, or to Judah, ultimately, and, and um, speaking about all that's coming their way pretty soon. And so he's, he reminds uh, Judah that that once again he uses sort of this analogy of um, like a bride or a wife that that Israel Judah has moved on to other lovers and she's not coming back and even when the consequences are presented to her she's still not going to turn yeah he emphasizes that she's only going to consider restoration after she has exhausted all wickedness I think this is just a picture and reminder to us that God wants all of us. He doesn't want us vacillating between other idols and him. He is a jealous God and he's jealous for our goodness as well. And our only good can be found in him. And, and we get, um, God kind of point out or or Jeremiah kind of point out, look, Judah, Judah's even seen Israel's fall and yet they didn't learn any lessons from it. And, and only that the Northern kingdom wasn't even as bad as Judah is right now, which feels super harsh because all we did for most of Chronicles and Kings is watch how bad the Northern kingdom was compared to the Southern kingdom. Uh, and so, uh, for, for Jeremiah to get here and say like, look, like the Southern kingdom's worse off than the Northern kingdom ever was right now. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's pretty harsh. And, and, and that Judah, his return was kind of false. And I think Jeremiah might be even speaking of Josiah's time when Josiah's doing all these reforms, they do take down some of the, 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 the false worship and stuff like that. And as soon as Josiah dies, everything goes back. And I think Jeremiah is kind of pointing that out. Like even your, your return was, was false. There was no real repentance. And, um, and yet there's an invitation for the Northern mm-hmm. kingdom to repent for the Southern kingdom to repent. There's a desire to be reunited and, and, um, but yet there's still a reminder. You're like a faithless wife or like a child who disobeyed obeys their parent and ignores them and but the child can repent and god the father will gladly restore them so repent and return but we'll see i think there's some messianic connections in this chapter as well we see god offer this grace to israel to repent but not only this but he promises shepherds that will actually lead his people well and he says that the ark won't be necessary for future worship and um, the ark is what ultimately points us to christ as well as this better shepherd and so but uh, he tells him, go return home, prepare for war, repent. And then God essentially tells Jeremiah that the leaders are ultimately going to just ignore this all anyways. Yeah. And this time Jeremiah is sort of kind of angry or boldly. He's like, God, you deceived your people. You you made us believe that if we repented, you would relent. But I think God's sort of in this like, but I also told you that it's not going to happen. You guys aren't going to repent. So even if I say repent and I'll, I'll, I'll relent, but you're not going to do that. So I'm coming like a hot wind and I'm coming like a, chariot in the whirlwind like no amount of speaking to these people has done anything so this is coming yeah and so uh, yeah there's anguish uh, over Judah. like uh, jeremiah expresses a sort of deep anguish this distraughtness of what god's going to do um and the description given almost feels like if you've seen like post-apocalyptic movies or like someone time travels to the to the future and suddenly like you get there it's this barren wasteland there's just sand blowing and maybe like bones of some carcass on off to the side. That's what sort of the imagery almost feels like as you read through it to me. Um, and Judah continues with this like idea of a prostitute with this red dress and like too much eyeliner on. And so there's this like picture for, for uh, the analogy that kind of keeps getting played out. And yet with all of this destruction, God will not make a full end of the whole land. We again see his amazing mercy. And even when anguish and dealing with foolish and evil people comes up, he does not completely abandon them. 
And Jeremiah is like hoping to find anyone. He's like, can I find just one person who's acting righteously? Maybe he's hoping to have like a, a Moses or Abraham sort of interceding moment, but he cannot find anyone. And he's like the poor, ignorant of the law, the rich really aren't any better. And these lions, these wolves, these leopards are ready to attack. Um, and God says, it's just too late to turn back. Like this, this vineyard is going to be destroyed no matter what the so-called prophets keep telling the Israelites. I, I'm telling you as is God that this vineyard is going to be destroyed. Yeah. And so the Lord proclaims judgment. Babylon's coming. Jeremiah's words are like fire to the people who are wood. And God's essentially saying, fine, you want to serve foreign gods? Go and serve those gods in the foreign lands themselves. And um, yeah, and and they were worshiping these foreign gods and, and they were not taking care of the poor, the needy in their midst. They were doing all these things that God's just had enough with. Yeah, God wants to pardon and offer them forgiveness. But he says, my people love to have it. So they're rejecting his offer of deliverance. And this is really sobering. Israel rejected God over and over again, seeking the worship of other idols. And God forcing them to worship him only would not produce joy or righteousness. So he is giving them over to what they want by no longer withholding other nations from Israel. He says, as you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your land, so you shall serve foreigners in a land that is not yours. We need to be cautious of our own forms of idolatry. And the more we give ourselves over to them, the more destruction in our own lives we will experience. Yeah. And God uh, kind of takes a role of almost the army commander for the Babylon. The, the sort of language used there is like, sounds like he's commanding the armies of Babylon himself. And so um, this is not simply an allowance. This is God like willing these things to happen. And uh, the people aren't listening and Jeremiah is getting frustrated and the pe- mm-hmm. he's pointing out the people are acting greedy. The priests themselves are corrupt. And, and even the very things that God has commanded them to do in worship, these practices, these offerings, like God reminding them, like, look, this was always about your heart. And I'm not against the rituals, but the rituals without your heart, I don't want anything, any part of, it's not what I'm after. And so the call, once again, repent, have that uncircumcised or have that circumcised heart, not just uh, circumcised on the outside, the, the people that, that, that are truly repented, that desire God. That's, that's the call in this moment. And, but we even get the metal analogy that we get kind of multiple times in scripture. And it's like, look, it's like Israel has gone through refining and all that we've kind of found is impurities and it's time to be tossed out. In verse 16, it talks about rest. And it's just so crazy to me. God has offered Israel rest and they have rejected the rest to be enslaved to other gods. We've learned a lot about polytheism and studying the Old Testament and all the different gods and idols that other nations worshipped and that Israel ended up worshipping. And every single other god that they worship requires work for approval. And then you don't even know how the god will respond. And yet we have Yahweh who's offering rest and restoration and reconciliation and provision to his people because of his kindness. And still they reject it. Yeah, it, and I mean, we'll unpack this as we go, but rest is like a theme, not only mm. the 70 years in, in there, but the instruction that we just got. We're going to see kind of this larger teaching on Sabbath, kind of smack dab in the middle of the book. Um, so this whole idea of like f- finding sort of the, the Sabbath life, the sort of peaceful trust in your God is good, trust in your God that, that he is trustworthy yeah. kind of, kind of uh, teaching is, is certainly there. But there's evil in the land. Repent. Yes, continuing. But um, Jeremiah at this point goes to the temple and he even has to tell the temple, don't, don't, don't feel safe just because the temple is here. Like as if God will always dwell forever with you guys. Like you, you need to stop. Like you're oppressing the widow and the orphan. You're desecrating the temple. Like, you you want to think that the temple is the sanctuary to you, but it's been desecrated. It's been become a den of robbers. Which uh, you got to imagine, Jesus 
coming into this group at, at one point and t- calling all the people uh, that, that they've desecrated the house of God and made it a den of robbers. Like, it's just like Jeremiah, who, who at this moment of one of the lowest points in Israel's history are saying, like, look, like, judgment is coming, and all of you people are part of uh, the reason, the desecration of the temple. Uh, so you can imagine why people weren't so happy with Jesus coming into the temple and doing what he did. But um, all this is happening, and, and God even tells the righteous, like, if you're still around, not to pray for mercy, which is pretty mm-hmm pretty hard too um and and he's reminding them think back to the relationship with god and his people like it it, it didn't start with the sacrifices like god god s- simply said follow me in the desert like the whole sacrificial system wasn't even set up and that's what he's saying to israel like that's what i want from you i want you to simply follow me and trust me and walk with me uh, no matter what the environment is like that yeah. that's what i desire from you not i don't care as much about the whole sacrificial system i want to be with you in the desert yeah that's good in the Valley of Slaughter, um, so this becomes a place um, where there's child sacrifice in the temple, like, and, and he's done with it. He he wants nothing to do with it, and um, a place that gets connected uh, certainly uh, with that child sacrifice pra- practice, and eventually gets uh, connected with um, some of the idea of hell and punishment. Mm. But because they're slaughtering children in this valley, the same destruction and shaming is going to come on them. Yep. Uh, and then sort of treachery and things like that, mm-hmm. that the people just can't seem to correct themselves. Like even birds know how to correct flight when they get off course, but these people don't seem to be able to do that. They're just not wise. And they're pretending the whole time. They're pretending peace is going to come. Uh, even though it's teaching God's law, doing it wrongly, but uh, Babylon's coming. So God's like so set up in the fortified cities and hope for the best. Yeah. And then Jeremiah grieves for his people. Um, he's greatly grieved. He's longing. He's like, is there not some sort of healing balm that can fix this? But he seems to know. But but no, there's corruption in the land. He longs just, even himself, he's like, I just long to be out in the desert away from all this. He knows a neighbor's going to plot against neighbors, their bail worship. Um, and, and so he kind of knows, once again, he's kind of acknowledging all this is right. Like, this is kind of what is deserved. Um, but he's reminded too, that those who don't know the Lord, like that's who it's for. Like those whose hearts have been changed and their circumcision of the heart, like they will remain and they will stay faithful. But God's ultimately bringing judgment, particularly for those who have unchanged hearts. Those who are truly faithful will just be in the storm as part of that. I think God really reiterates his character here. God has not changed. He continues to practice and delight in steadfast love and justice and righteousness. And Israel has rejected God, and therefore they have rejected love. They have rejected righteousness and justice, and they're reaping the consequences of these rejections. For us today as believers, and for Israel back then, we must understand that God's commands to us are His very best for us. When we we view God's instruction as burdensome or inconvenient, we are foolish. But when we embrace His commands, even if they're difficult, we are coming under God's love and justice and righteousness in the way that He created us to be. And then we spend a chapter kind of pointing out the, the silliness of idols, like if you can physically with your hands make something and then worship, like, are you not the God of the thing that you crafted? Like that, that's sort of the, the silliness of sometimes the, the physical creations that become places of worship. It's, and, and even the analogy, it's like a scarecrow in a field of cucumbers. Um, but this idea like that, that idols are the inventions of human hands. That's all they are. And, and Jeremiah is like, Yahweh is the real deal. 
He's not this just crafted object that could sit on a shelf. He's a real deal. And, and you guys don't get that. So pack your bags. You're going to Babylon. You're like this flock that's going to be scattered. And your shepherds have been clueless too. They haven't led you correctly. And so Jeremiah still acknowledges God's sovereignty in all this and asks God to correct his people. And maybe, maybe he could relent on his anger a little bit. Maybe just pour out your anger on the nations and maybe not in Jerusalem. But Jeremiah still seems to know like this is still all you, God. Yeah, it is. When you compare, like, when you compare it in this way, the man made idols versus Yahweh itself, it's just kind of laughable anytime we would worship these other, these idols that have never once satisfied long term, at least. And so then we get a reminder of the broken covenant. Now, if you think back to Josiah, uh, if you found the book and he's reading it all, I mean, they've walked through, okay, here's the covenant. Here are all the things that God desires his people to live like. Here's all the ways that are disobedient. Here's all the blessings that come with all those things. Here's all the curses that come with all those things. And and in all those, like we've seen, like here, here are the curses. Here's what will happen should you do this. And yet it doesn't seem like they gave a rip after they read that. Like as soon as Josiah is done, they're like, well, let's go back to all the things that are going to be violations of the covenant. And so um, God's sort of like, okay, like if that's what you want, like you used to be like a fruitful olive tree in my house, but with the breaking of the covenant comes the curses. Like my word is true and this is going to happen. And the news is so unpopular that at this point, everybody's like ready to start killing Jeremiah for it. Yeah. And so uh, let's jump into Colossians, kind of the, the tail end. Um, and as we noted last week, Colossians gets, follows a similar outline to the book of Ephesians. And we get the teaching on um, households of, uh, of the, the husband, wife, the child, parent, the uh, slave and master kind of set up. And so it's just much briefer. Yeah, but again, to reiterate, we see dignity being given to women and to children and bondservants and that they're given a voice and a role and a position, and even this letter is addressed to them somewhat. And so let's make sure we read these passages in the context of the people, the initial readers. And I think the key verse here is verse 23, whatever you do, work with all your heart is working for the Lord and not for men. That is our invitation as well, whether we are working in the marketplace or a stay-at-home parent or in university, we are to do it all to the Lord. And then the catch-all, several verses of further instructions. So have clear speech, walk in wisdom, salt salt your speech towards mm-hmm. uh, other people that in a way that might be enticing, that might be flavored. Like it should be good news. Like there should be part of that in how you speak to others. Yeah. Pray for yourself, pray for others, and exercise wisdom with outsiders with the gospel purpose and intention in your conversations with them. And then Paul spends a lot of Verses then kind of talking about his other co-workers and at least those who are still left with him, including Onesimus, which you saw in Philemon and uh, uh, others that he goes out of his way to a name. This is another reminder that Paul is not a lone island, but he, and he does all things really in community. I'm especially encouraged in this by Epaphras. He exemplifies sacrificial love in the way he serves the Colossian church, even when he's not around through praying for them and working to see them live out their faith. And I think this is a great example for us to model. So final thoughts, two weeks of Colossians. Yeah, I think reading through Colossians, I'm just reminded, especially I think it was in Colossians that kind of Paul's structure came together for me, where he talks about identity and character of God first and how this is central and essential. We need to, I personally need to truly understand who God is and who I am in relation to God before I take any action or do any work in order that I am doing it out of faith and freedom and joy in Christ rather than like feeling like I have to or without joy. Yeah. It's interesting kind of reading this time around with a little bit of a more of a Gnostic radar than the last time I read it. And, um, 
their problem is kind of the reverse of our problem. I think uh, they, they have no problem with the sacred and, and those kind of things that they, they have a problem understanding like how, how, um, how real or, or tangible or physical or human Jesus could be. And I think in a lot of times in our world, we, there's, there's a lot of teaching of like, Jesus was a good prophet. He was a good person in history, but like how divine is he really? Um, and it's interesting as you kind of read that and, and even read the dynamics. I mean, it's the wonders of the word of God and how active in dynamic it can really be of, of bridging those gaps, no matter who, who's kind of reading it and clarity around sort of the divinity of Christ and humanity and how it actually connects to like, me very personally, like these connection of the dots, like Christ's death in a body connects suddenly to my, my body and, and the redemption of, mm. of my body physically, not in its fullness. And we're going to not gonna see that until co- the culmination of the world, but the wisdom of Christ and how that connects to, to, to the mind of Christ that I have now, the wisdom that I actually have to, to live out and make decisions or the resurrection and how that connects to my baptism. And, mm-hmm. and so many sort of like tangible connection points between the, the story of Jesus and, and my present reality. And, and I think that's, that's so important to, to sometimes go like, it's not just Jesus is this, high viewed um divine messiah but it but it steps into my present world in in so many different ways and um trying to see those trying to see like okay in in this thing as I, as i drink water how do i connect it to the the divine because this physical act has a connection point and thinking through water and stuff like that and i know Colossians is right about those things but i think the the overlap of of sometimes the 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 physical the felt the 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 tangible reality and the divine sometimes I think Colossians will will help us kind of understand that those two things are so connected so mm. under the lordship of Jesus both both sides and so yeah so Philemon yeah so Paul again was in Rome and he was writing this letter um, about Onesimus who was a slave to a guy named Philemon in Colossae. And so Paul was really, I mean, this whole letter, it's a personal letter written to Philemon. And Paul's goal here is to help reconcile a broken and potentially explosively broken relationship between Philemon, the owner of his bond slave Onesimus. Yeah. And, and with Roman slavery and how you get freedom and all those kind of things. Um, I mean, it's, 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 complicated and at this point uh, onesimus is like is full-on breaking the law and one of the penalties i mean as far as the penalties can go can go to death and yeah. um and yet there's a roman system of having a, a citizen kind of become a patronage to you that they can speak and vouch for you and and even after committing a crime that they can can speak into that that the person could speak on your behalf to sort of elevate your status so if somebody was a terrible slave owner or something like that the the, the roman government would want a citizen to be able to speak out against that thing by having by representing a, a citizen or some or a, a slave or something like that and so um i don't think that philemon was necessarily a terrible slave owner, but I think Onesimus is, is here appealing to Paul in a similar way of going, of going like, okay, like I'm here. I ran away. I'm, I'm, and, and he runs to the place where like he runs to Rome where like the heart of the law would be yet. He comes to Paul and Paul sort of takes on this patronage role for him to, to kind of write to his former owner to say, okay, like here's how you need to act as a believer in Christ. Here's how you need to act. Um, and so, yeah. And there's some subplots theologically and we'll point this out as we go. So, so there's a simple greeting. Um, 
And it's interesting because uh, this is our first individual letter that we've encountered. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll deal with this in Timothy as well and Titus. But um, yeah, it's written to certainly Philemon, but it almost feels like Paul sort of like CCs the whole church on the second line here. <laughs> um, and so uh, it, it's almost expected that Philemon would, would read this also in front of the whole church, which is probably why we have this letter. Yeah. And then he speaks to Philemon's love and his faith. Um, it's hard to read. Maybe I read it a little bit buttering up of Philemon before he gives him instructions on on kind of what to do now. But um, but maybe Philemon does have this incredible sort of full faith that 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 is um, that is um, refreshing for those around him. All those sort of ideas. Yeah, Philemon is known to Paul as loving and full of faith and and refreshing. And Paul continues to pray that his sharing of the gospel will lead to a fuller understanding of every good thing we have access to. So like other things, other books, we see Paul starting kind of with a prayer or a praise, a celebration of the relationship they already have before he gets to the main point or the main thrust of the letter. Yeah, and, and I think Paul appeals to, to almost gospel motivations right from the get-go. He kind of sits there and goes, you know what? I, I have I have full right to command you to do this, Philemon. Like, this, this is how it, it likely or rightly really should be, but here's what I want you to do. Out of love, out of love, I want you to be obedient in those things. Like, this is my desire. Like, I don't, I want, I don't want law to drive your decision here, Philemon. I want love to drive your decision. Mm-hmm. And if you love God and understand what God desires from you, then then this is what should, should be the outcome. Uh, that you would be, um, that you would welcome Onesimus back, like like you would welcome me, like and and I, and I think Paul Paul maybe knows sort of this church. I mean, the church certainly has a reputation. He just wrote about it in, in Colossians and and, and this expectation of like I, I trust that you will do what is right here. I don't need to command you to do it because I trust that you guys will do what is right. I think we also see Paul discipling, or Paul really kind of like embodying the gospel in a way here where he speaks to Philemon and says, I will pay the debt for Onesimus that he owes against you. Even though I haven't done any wrong, I haven't done any kind of stuff, like I will suffer the cause of that. And so though this is a book where Paul doesn't strictly and specifically speak directly to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we see him offering to um I guess, walk in a manner of Jesus Christ in the way that he's willing to take on the debt of Onesimus, which is pretty cool. Yeah. And then a final greeting, kind of Paul reminds the people, uh, the, the people he was with. Yeah. And we see he's got a whole team again. Yep. Final thoughts? I like reading a more bit. personal letter from Paul. This is a very different practical outplay of the gospel. And I think a reminder even for us that our status as family in Christ is going to trump any other scenarios or situations or relational difficulties or challenges. We need to fight for our relationships within the church, and it is worth it. You will not regret it. Yeah. Uh, to me, this is like uh, orthodoxy, which is sort of like right think your right belief, put into orthopraxy, which is right practice, right living it out. Like, And we see this with the prophets. We'll see sort of prophetic theater where the object lessons are suddenly played out to teach a lesson. I think Philemon's that like you want to teach about law based on obedience versus law based, uh, love based obedience, like reconciliation, all these things, restoration of shame and honor. Okay. Philemon, here's what I need you to do. And, um, it takes something, it makes something so practical that could stay theoretical. Um, and sort of the right orthodoxy leads to right orthopraxy and, and sort of taking, um, where the rubber meets the road. It's like, it's mm-hmm. great to say that you care about grace based and love based reconciliation. It's another thing to actually be put into the, 
into the place where you now have to practice it. And not only that, but you've got a whole community around you that's expecting you to put into practice. And so, um, yeah. this, this is, uh, kind of Paul, uh, giving this sort of practical, um, uh, test case in a way of of what he's probably taught and written to the church uh, about the situation. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, I think it's so good. Yeah, James. Uh, and so, do you want me to do the intro? Sure, go for okay. it. Um, yeah, I, I think uh, James is uh, likely the likely the author of James is the leader of the church uh, that was in Jerusalem, and we do know uh, by Acts fifteen that the leader of the church there was named James, and we assume that this is the same James, um, the kinsman of Jesus, possibly his brother, but the language can be more complicated than that. Um, and, and if he's a leader of the church in Jerusalem, um, he likely has a church almost exclusively uh, filled with Jewish converts to Christianity. Not He doesn't have to deal with a lot of the Gentile questions and all, all the, that some of the other churches have to deal with. That's why Peter is the one who has to bring people to Jerusalem and be like, look, Gentiles are actually converting because I don't think they had a lot of test cases in Jerusalem about it. And so, um, and if you remember in Acts 15, you, you have James almost have this more restrictive view in some ways where the council's like, we need to welcome the Gentiles. And James is like, okay, fine, but we need them to obey the, at least these three things things. And, um, it seems good to us and the Holy spirit and sort of this, this council kind of meeting. And so, um, but we have to realize he's the head of a predominantly Jewish Christian church and is writing to a predominantly Jewish Christian audience. And I think it helps us understand as the letter goes, the, the sort of context and the audience that he's writing to and not only that, but, um, when, when James talks about works, he, he uses a, a bit of a different term, um, than maybe Paul does when Paul says kind of works of the law. And so, um, I think that will help us kind of parse out of going like, why does James seem to contradict Paul? Because I don't think he's contradicting. I think he has a different audience. They might be saying something different to them. And James is considered to be wisdom literature. It has over 50 commands in it. As you read it, I think you're going to think of Proverbs. You'll probably think of Ecclesiastes or Job a little bit, and definitely the Sermon on the Mount. There are lots and lots of parallels to James in the Sermon on the Mount. So keep that in mind as you read it. And it's going to make it hard for us at times to talk about. I mean, it's the same problem we have sometimes parsing through Proverbs. It's like you have a verse here and two verses here, one verse here, and they, they sometimes are talking about very different things and saying really deep things in like a sentence about those things. And so, uh, there may be ways we just kind of breeze over certain sections just because it's like, okay, James made like 20 points in about 12 sentences. And so, um, yeah. Yeah. Reading the book of James is a great example of why, we should read slowly and more in depth while we also read broadly. So it's good for us to be reading the Bible every couple of years and like have touch points with every book of the Bible. But, but there's so much to be found and explored and mined in scripture that you won't get through just reading a chapter or two a day and then moving on. And we get the greeting and uh, James certainly identifies his audience, the, 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 the diaspora, the, the, the exist, all the Jews that from the 12 tribes that have been spread now out throughout the Gentile world. So he's writing out from Jerusalem, uh, but it does seem like his audience. Uh, some people try to, to metaphorize, to, to make that line like a metaphor for all believers everywhere. But um, in a first century audience, they would not read it that way. <laughs> they would hear the 12 tribes of Israel and think, okay, for the Jewish people, this this is, this is sort of a target audience. Not to say he's not going to bring in teaching that will affect the Gentiles, but he certainly has his audience. And let's say James, this is the James who is the brother of Jesus and the elder of the church in Jerusalem. It's pretty cool that he identifies himself first as a servant. So his primary, primary identity is not in necessarily is in his familial relation to Jesus or his role in the church, but as a servant to yep. Christ. And so we get uh, kind of 
conversation around testing your faith that we get a conversation around a lot of things in, in this opening section, but uh, to, to these brothers and sisters who are facing all sorts of suffering, all sorts of trials, um, James appeals to remember who God is, like ask for wisdom about it. Like don't be deceived. God's not two faced. He's not fickle. God's not trying to trip you up and fool you. Like you're suffering. Like it has a sanctifying effect. Be steadfast in it. Don't, don't believe the lies of the world. Like understand that in the suffering that, that, that there's a purpose to it. And um, not only that, but he starts speaking about poverty. Like even if you're in poverty and there's, there's an elevated sense to that and, and anything sometimes richest is, is sort of the, can be, can be the downfall. And so, and James in a church that probably struggle with poverty is uh, highlighting these things. And so, yeah. You know, the end of this little section that we're talking through right now talks about how every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of Lights. In the beginning of it talks about how suffering and struggle will give us steadfastness, which will make us perfect and complete lacking in nothing. I think there's a central understanding to this, that the source of everything is from God and that he uses all things for our good and his glory, like Romans 8, 28 says. So we can rejoice in our sufferings and we can trust God and we can ask him for help and wisdom when we need it. Yeah. And then sort of the hearing and doing the word. We, we get a first warning about tongues, but we'll deal with that a little bit more uh, next chapter. Um, but James kind of seems to be reminding his audience, yes, like we have a lot of liberty now, but let's remember, like when you hear the word, like you, you are also the doers of the word and like, otherwise you didn't really hear the word to begin with. Like, yes, like based upon the freedom, certainly we have in Christ, but upon that freedom, like it, we respond with action. This is not a free for all to do whatever we want, but one who will seek to, to do and obey Yahweh. That's our goal. And some of the central commands in, in that, and, and kind of points it out in context, like it's care for the oppressed, care for the orphan, the widow. Like that's really what the law requires of us. If we were to ask what does the law require? Well, it requires compassion and love for neighbor. It's stuff like that. And so he's pointing that out. Like, this is what following Jesus is. You hear it, you obey it, and you move forward. We are to be servants and lovers of others. But if we jump to conclusions or focus on what's done wrong, we are going to quickly neglect the soul in front of us in order to further a cause or a mission that God is already accomplishing in his time. So when you are in a conflict with somebody, step back and see the person you're arguing with as an image bearer of God first. Give him or her a voice and be patient with false understandings, trusting God. Remember that you also didn't earn your salvation and pray humbly that they may also know the truth that changed you. So, uh, Psalm 79? Yeah. So this seems to be a prophetic psalm written by Asaph that Chris just made a comment about that it maybe wasn't written back in David's time. Yeah. But ultimately we're talking about the fall of Jerusalem here and that's happening because God is angry and jealous at their false worship. Yeah. Sometimes, uh, um, titles and stuff like that and who they're attributed to. It's just complicated when you deal with authorship, particularly in the Psalms, but that's another story. Yeah. Destruction of the temple, the desire for God to return and for God's anger. This is almost what, uh, Jeremiah kind of said in his letter too. Like God, I'm okay if your anger's for all the nations around me, but but I, I pray that you hear us, you hear the groans, and you restore us. Uh, psalm 55, or at least the first half of it. Yeah, it's an imprecatory psalm. kind of a downer to read the first half because it <laughs> just like it ends kind of hopeless. But David is lamenting that he's been betrayed by a close friend who has rejected God and turned against him. And then if you get to verse 16, it says, but... 
but we don't get there. Yep. Yeah, there's definitely a <laughs> comment about someone that gets the betrayal of the author, but yeah. And then there's a famous quote, even for Forrest Gump that like I was reading and I'm like, I can't not hear Jenny say, make me a bird so I can fly far, far, far away from here. But um, yeah, God's personal, but he's also wrathful in this text. Like the, the author has a very personal take on God, but yet understands the power of the wrath of, of God. And then Psalm 52. So I, I like the structure of the Psalm. It's kind of easy to follow, but, you, but the author first talks about how the wicked love all things wicked, but then God will triumph over the wicked and the wicked will be destroyed and those who trust in god will have peace yeah the evil dealer they're going to be humiliated and the offers authors like an olive tree which we actually mm-hmm. saw once again in in the text that we read today the um i think it was in the jeremiah text and so um that that's compared to the olive tree is really you were like an olive tree but now you're not anymore and the same thing with the author here saying saying be like the olive tree steady trust in god bear fruit because of god's work in you all right next week so we're going to read a lot of Jeremiah again, and I think it can feel heavy and monotonous at times. So I encourage you just to pay attention to the different metaphors in the next section. We're going to hear about trees and potter and clay and um, blocks, all these things. So which one do you relate to and which metaphor can you even include or incorporate into your prayers this coming week? And then in the New Testament, James feels like he's jumping from subject to subject, but spend some time and do the work and and see if you can find some of the interconnectedness in his writing and kind of the cyclicalness of his book. Yeah. And mix into the, all the imagery and metaphors. Yeah. That, that Sarah just talked about. Jeremiah sneaks in a few sections of like, here's how to live. Here's what obedience looks like. And he'll talk about things like Sabbath and all. like, what are some of those things? And what does that say about maybe the priorities of Yahweh and, and his desire for obedience in Israel? What, what, if you were to say like the, 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 the primary pieces of the law or obedience. What, what do they look like? And then new Testament, if, if James does have a largely Jewish convert kind of group, he's certainly going to deal with the question of law and gospel, which is an important question, but he's also going to sneak in conversation around the tongue and some other things like that, like partiality. What, what do you think maybe thinking of that audience, why he's saying that, mm-hmm. what might be the problem of the tongue for this, these Jewish converts who are living in this Gentile world and things like that. And so, uh, yeah, I think it helps to give a little bit of context. Too. All right, that's it for today. Thanks, y'all. Thank you.